Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good, good. It's a good Sunday morning after a late night Aggie win. And, uh, and so if you have your Bibles, if you will, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 1 through 11. And, and the first thing I want to say is just thank you, uh, Blake, Grace team, for, for allowing me to preach this morning. It's an honor uh, to be with you. My wife has been coming here and family have been coming here for a little uh, over a year now as while I was interim pastor at Living Hope. And then in August, when, when I transitioned from there, I started coming and, and my kids have just connected here. And so, uh, and that means a lot as a parent. And I've connected here, growing so many friends. And so Blake, thanks so much for trusting me uh, to preach here. I wanted to get get you or have you get to know me a little bit more. So this is a picture of my family. Uh, that's my wife Lindsay on the left, and uh, I met Lindsay for the first time at a college Bible study in the Woodlands, Texas. And so I walked into the room, uh, walked up the stairs at, from at this house in the Woodlands, and I immediately saw her, and I thought I need to know her. And so we went around the room introducing ourselves, and, and when it got to her, I leaned forward in my seat a little bit, uh, got a little bit uh, interested in what was going on, and she said, hi, my name is Lindsay Smith, and, and I go to the University of Texas. And I rocked back in my seat, and I was like, this is never going to work. And so, and so um, little did I know that through that summer, uh, I got to know Lindsay, see her serve, see um, just connect with her. And so we went to Glorietta, New Mexico. I really got to know her. If you've ever been to Glorietta, uh, New Mexico at a camp there, that's where you find your spouse, college students, just a little advice. And so, um, and so I got to know her and for a week, uh, we dated in the same city. And then for the next two years, we never lived in the same city. She went back to Austin. I came to college station and then I moved to Denver and then, uh, and then we got married, and we've been married for 15 years, believe it or not. So it can work. It can work, UT and A&M. And then we have four kids. So my oldest daughter is Brooke. She's in the maroon uh, just to my left, and she is in seventh grade. And then we have twins, Hudson and Hallie, which were a surprise, twins, Hudson and Hallie. We had three kids under two. Uh, so well, thanks for praying for us still. And then, uh, and then our bonus baby, Claire, right there in the middle. She's in pre-K. She's in pre-K. So, so one of the things that I, that I love about Lindsay is, is she's a gifted space maker. Uh, what I mean by that is she can take uh, blank walls and, and turn it into a space that is inviting and, and thoughtful. And, and so just a few years ago, we were building a house. And, and as she was decorating all the different rooms, she went from the living room to the kitchen to the game room area. And then she started moving to the kids' rooms her and a friend went to Ikea. I know, they went to Ikea. And so, um, and so they went without me, but, but I come home one day and she says, hey George, there is a dresser in Brooke's room uh, that I would love for you to build. Like, I, I need your help. And I'm sure it was written on my face what I thought about Ikea in that moment. But I remember walking up the stairs and then as I turn the corner into Brooke's room, I see the box, it's a white box, and has a picture of the dresser on it. And I remember looking at it and thinking, there is no way that all those pieces are in this box. 
And so I looked at it. I'm like, you know what? This can't be too bad. And so I opened the box up, uh, took out all the pieces, took about a quarter inch of styrofoam off the top, and then organized all the pieces. Had my kids with me. Okay, so all the the letters and alphabet go over here. Uh, All the numbers go over here. All the weird symbols that you don't know what they mean, they go over here in this corner because I'm not sure we're going to need them. And so all these things start coming in. And as we get all the stuff out and we're digging, we're digging. It's like Mary Poppins bag in this box. It just keeps coming. I thought for sure a lamp was going to come out at some point. And so now all the pieces are out and organized. And then my wife starts reading the instructions to me. She's like, okay, take B. Okay, get B. And then get A-A-C and A-A-D because we went through the alphabet three times with the number of pieces in the box and take six number seven screws and four number eight screws and then get 16 of the wood dowels and put them all in. And I'm like, Lens, I don't even know what's going on here. I said, is there a picture that I can point to that you can show me that will help as I guide, as I build this thing? And so she handed me the picture and she's like, oh, it makes sense. 16 number, 16 wood dowels, eight number sixes or whatever it was. And four, and all these things in a place like this. And I realized that when I had a picture of what it was supposed to look like, even though I had a vision, I needed a picture of what it would take to build this dresser. Now, what does that have to do with Philippians chapter two? You're asking. That's a great question. In this text, Paul is going to give us a vision of what our life is supposed to look like in Jesus. And as he he gives us that vision, he's going to lay out specific pieces for us to follow. And as we lay out the specific pieces, if we have any questions, he's going to give us a picture of what it takes to put that life together. So so let's look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. And here's what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, underline that word, in Christ. If there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... So, so I love this point right here because Paul has just um, started in, in chapter 1 uh, giving thanks to the Philippian church, talking about advancing the gospel and, and how to live as Christ. And then he says this, if there is any comfort, if there is any encouragement, any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy in Christ. So it's like, hey, if you've given your life to Christ, if you've experienced His love, if you have any participation of the Holy Spirit in your life, then do this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, now, when I was in college, uh, one thing that was really important or one thing that I knew was going to be on the test was if there was a repetition of words that my professor would say. I, it took me a while to learn that. I didn't learn that my freshman year, got a little bit better my sophomore year, but my junior and senior year and my, my half victory lap at the end, like I got that down. If there's any repetition, it's important. So look at the repetition here. 
It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. So the first thing it says is, hey, have one mind. And that mind is, it means mindset, orientation, what your eyes are fixed on, what, what preoccupies you. He says, as a group of believers, have one mind. One mind. And then it says, having the same love. And that word love uh, means a, a love without boundaries. A love that is, that is connected to, to one another. A, a love that is self-sacrificing to love what is best in each other. Then it says being united in spirit or being in full accord. It, it means together in soul, actually, is what that word means. That we would be together in, our, in, in the depths of our souls together. And then it says of one mind, of one mindset, that we would have this mutual commitment to grow in faith and live for the gospel. So there is this unity that God calls, that Paul is calling the Philippian church to. And he's like, have the same mind, the same love, the same spirit, and the same mindset. You see, unity in the gospel is a mutual commitment going together in the same direction. It's like the early church in Acts 2. It says that, that when they came together, when 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches that sermon, and people come to know the Lord, it says this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. Like they gave themselves to that. And so Paul is saying, hey, be unified in these things. But then he gives us some things that, that destroy unity. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of one of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he gives us things, hey, this is what unity looks like. Same mind, same love, same spirit, same mindset. And then he says, the thing that will destroy unity is selfish ambitions. I mean, just think about your week. I mean, just think about maybe like just the last three days, actually. What are the things that that you've done that that lead to that sort of selfish ambition? What are are the decisions that you've made that that were 100% selfish? And he says that when we begin to be selfish in that way, it actually destroys unity. And he says, but in humility, count others as more important than yourselves. And we're going to dive into that in just a minute. But, but he says, value other people more than you actually value yourself. It's the same thing that, that God calls husbands to that Paul writes about in Ephesians. To love Christ as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, that your wants, your ambitions, your dreams, your desires are now secondary to someone else's dreams, hopes, wants, passions, and desires. 
And then he says, let each one of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I love this. It's, it's not others like the people you know in your family. Like it's others plural, like, like all of humanity. That, that we should see and seek out the interests of other people. I mean, like, like that's a difficult picture, isn't it? I mean, it's not an easy thing. So, so if I could sum up this, if, if we could maybe just sum up this first portion, it is this right here. Hey, if you're a believer, if you have any participation of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you've experienced God in any way, then be unified in the same mind. And don't look out for your interests, but rather in humility, look towards the interests of others. And that is not an easy thing. I mean, like this passage right here, Blake, like I, th- I think you'll appreciate this. Like this passage, as I was reading a bunch of commentaries, says that this passage is by far one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. Here we go, guest preacher. No pressure. But, but, the reason it's one of the most important is because it calls us to something that is unattainable on our own. I mean, have you ever woken up, this safe space here, have you ever woken up and said, you know what, today I'm, not, I'm going to look only towards the interest of others. I would beg to say or probably think that not many of us have woken up like that. But that's the vision that Paul paints And he doesn't paint it for us individually. He paints it for us together. That as an army of believers, we would go do that. Now, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So underline yours in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so we've seen the picture, like we've seen the vision, we, we've seen the pieces, and then now... Paul looks at us and says, hey, and if you have any questions of what your life is supposed to look like, here is someone that I want to point you to. Here's a picture of what this type of unity, here's a picture of what this type of characteristics look like in human form. And he points to Jesus. How about that standard? He, He points directly to Jesus and he says this, who though he was in the form of God. Now, that word form is probably not the best translation of this particular Greek word. And probably a better interpretation would be he was in the very nature of God. That word form means that he was like it, but not of it. Nature means that he was the same. That he was sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He was part of the Trinity. He was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was right next to God. In the middle of the creation narrative, he's right there next to God. 
in the middle of all the Old Testament, he's right there next to God. And here's what he says. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was looking, he was right next to God, right next to the throne. The Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son are all together in this perfect unity. But he humbled himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And then it says that he emptied himself. And that word emptied in the Greek is kenosis and It means that he literally gave all of himself to us. That he poured himself up. And he poured out everything he had for you and for me. It it doesn't mean that, that he lost deity or gave up deity. But what he did was he exercised his rights as God and said, I'm going to give up my rights. The things that I am privileged to, the things that that value, the things that I value, I'm going to give those up and I'm going to empty myself out for someone else. And he says the way he emptied himself out was by taking the form of a servant. Who being born in the likeness of man. That word servant in the Greek means that he was submitting himself to someone else's desires. Even when he didn't want to do it. You know, for some of us, it's really easy to submit to someone else's desires when we want to do it. But we see a picture of this in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus And he knows what's about to come. He knows what's about to happen. And he is on his knees begging God, is there a different way for me to accomplish this sort of redemption than than a brutal death on the cross? And he looks and God and Jesus are in perfect communication and God looks at Jesus and says, there's no other way. And he goes, fine, I'll do it. And he submitted himself. He humbled himself. Even when he didn't want to. And then it says this. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. And so here's the thing that I want us to see this morning. Is that when Jesus gave up his rights. And he humbled himself. And when he and God were unified together. Then the gospel spread forth. And went out faster than anything else in history. That that when Jesus humbled himself, counted other people's needs as more important than our own, then what happened was the gospel spread like wildfire. Like Like we see all of this in Acts. We see... The Holy Spirit coming, 3,000 people being saved, and then persecution coming. And then, before you know it, in a few years, when it comes compared to history, the gospel is spread to every part of the known world. Because Jesus humbled himself, gave up his rights, 
and created a fertile ground for the gospel to spread. So, so that's the picture. Like, that's the vision. Hey, that we should humble ourselves. We should be unified together in the same way. And then, not only should we, should we be unified, but we should live that out and humble ourselves and, and let other people be more important than us. And if we have a question for what it looks like, then Jesus is the model. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Like, what does that mean for us? Here's the first thing. The first thing that I believe this means. That when we choose, that when we choose to be selfish, it hinders the advance of the gospel. But when we choose to be unselfish, then the gospel has fertile soil to spread quickly, to spread quickly. The reason I say, the reason I think that's so important is because innate inside of us is this desire to assert my rights. Hey, where do you want to eat? I want Mexican food. Great. Chewies. Let's go. Hey, what songs do you want to listen to? You know, I I really want to listen to Florida Georgia Line today. Or, you know what? Uh, Taylor Swift is my choice of music today. That's good. I was just at her concert a few days ago, and it was phenomenal. And it was Lindsay's 15-year anniversary gift to me to go to that concert. (laughs) Hey, and there's no judgment here. Like, I don't feel weird about it. I really don't. But, But think about the ways that we assert our rights every day. Think about those ways that we assert our rights every day. My right to worship the way I want to worship. My right to expect someone to ask forgiveness first when they wrong me. My right to be treated with respect, especially in marriage. My right uh, to have my needs met. My right to have control over my schedule or my money. My right not to be interrupted. My right to pursue my interest. My right to be thanked, praised, acknowledged. You know what? On Sunday mornings, my right to good parking. (laughs) My right to be right. My right to be heard. My right to just have a few quiet moments away. My right to come home after a long day of work and sit on the couch and zone out for an hour or two. My right to live in a certain neighborhood. My right to get a certain grade in a certain class. My right to be comfortable. My right to have health. How many rights do we literally assert every day at every moment? And when those rights aren't met, what happens? We get frustrated. We get angry. Yet Jesus, the picture that we're to look to, literally says that we are to give up the intrinsic rights that we have and humble ourselves and count others as more important than ourselves. So let me just say this. Hey, when you come home from work and if you have kids at the house, 
Like I come home and my son Hudson is like, dad, glove, ball, backyard, me, you now. And I'm like, give me a minute or two. My daughter, hey, dad, basketball outside on the court, get your shorts on, get your shoes on. Let's go. And I'm like, all I want to do is just sit down, have a conversation with Lindsay, eat dinner and go to bed. Maybe watch a show. But God has called me as a father to give up of myself, to give up my rights and to see the rights of my family as more important. And in the same way that God calls fathers, he calls every one of us to give up our rights and pursue others interests as more important than our own. So college students, think of your roommate who won't put, who won't just do the dishes. Think of think of your workplace. Think of your classes. And let me ask you this. What would your living situation, what would your classes, what would your workplace, what would your, fam- your family look like if you decided today that you were going to follow the example of Christ and give up of your rights? How different would it be? What would your classroom look like? What would your workplace look like? What would your family look like in your home? My guess is it would look dramatically different. Now what Paul is not talking about here is giving up our intrinsic rights as people. Like there are rights that that everyone is born with. And so we should fight for other people's rights, especially those Especially those who don't have a voice. And we should fight for those rights inside the public square. But what Paul is talking about is giving up of our opinions and the rights that we have internally and giving them up and seeing others as more important than ourselves. So our selfishness hinders the advance of the gospel. The second thing, The second thing that I want to challenge us on is that if Jesus is the example of how we we are to respond. So if Jesus is the picture of how we're to respond, then we need to know how Jesus responds. Let me say this again. Since Jesus is the picture of how to respond, then we need to be students of. Of how Jesus responds. So I know we're in church. And, and, and I know like who's gathered in the room together typically. But, but Lifeway a few years ago did a research that, that blew me away. That blew me away. Lifeway research. Here is a study. They studied how often people who said they were believers read the Bible. And here, here were the results. Um, 20% said they read it every day. 20% of people who said they were Christians read the Bible every day. 40%, 40% of people that attend church said they read their Bible once or twice a month. Then, Another 20%, another 20% said 
that they never read the Bible. Now, the danger in that is that if Jesus is the picture and Jesus is the example, that if nearly 60% of us only read the Bible at best once or twice a month, then we are missing out on the picture of what it means to give up your rights. What it means to interact with other people correctly like Jesus did. And so our biblical illiteracy actually leads to an illiteracy of life. And so here's the question that I have to ask that begs the question. When was the last time you opened up your Bible, opened up the word and outside of a church or group setting, read it by yourself to, to seek and follow God? Like, has it been a week? Has it been a couple weeks? A month? Like two months? Six months? Has it been a year? Two years? Or, or longer? Like, like when was, when you open up the very word of God and say, God, I need to know you. Because we have to know Jesus in order to see how, so we can see how he responded and how we should respond. Like, how did Jesus respond to people who interrupted him? How did Jesus respond to political leaders of the day? How did Jesus respond to the poor, the self-righteous? How patient was Jesus? How did Jesus lead his people? How did Jesus work with difficult people? We all have them. How did he handle situations when he knew he needed to do something but didn't want to do it? When we miss the picture, it's like putting together a piece of Ikea furniture with only words. It's impossible. And so when was the last time you read the word of God and allowed it to speak to you? So in 1911, there was a race uh, to get to the South Pole. Uh, there were these two particular explorers um, that, that wanted to get to the North Pole, but when they were on their journey to the North Pole, they heard that someone else had already reached it. And so these explorers changed directions and headed south to the South Pole. And so in 1911, in 1911, these two people, Robert Falcon Scott and Roald Armusen, say those names fast, Armusen, set on a journey to find the magnetic South Pole. They had trained for it. They had put a team together. They had all the same equipment, all the same things. And they virtually landed at the same place at the same time, just a few miles apart. They endured the same situations. They endured the same weather constraints, all the same things. But what's different between the two of them is the, their strategies. They had two different strategies. Robert Scott, his team that decided that when the weather was good, they were going to ride hard. 
And so they would break camp. They would check the weather, see what was going on. And if it was only a 30 mile an hour wind and the sun was out that day, they were going to ride a long way. And sometimes they would ride for 30, 40, 50. And at their most, they rode 60 miles in a day to cover that 1,400 mile journey from where they landed to the South Pole. Armelson, his, his strategy was completely different. He decided that every day, no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, they were going to ride 20 miles, 20 miles every day. So they would get up in the morning, 1911, and if the weather was good, they would get to 20 miles, they would stop, set up camp, rest the dogs, and rest their bodies. Every day, 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles. What's fascinating when you read about this story is that Armelson, the, the team that only decided to go 20 miles every day, reached the magnetic South Pole 34 days faster than Scott's team. Every day, 20 miles. Scott's team, Scott's team gets to the magnetic pole, sees the Norwegian flag all tattered from the wind, realizes that he's come in second place. They camp there and then they start to go out. But what's interesting is that not one person on Scott's journey ever made it out. They all died on the journey back to the ship. But Armulse's team made it to the pole and made it all the way out. Okay, so what does that have to do with this? Sometimes when we get confronted with the truth of not understanding scripture, what happens is we make these big grandiose plans. I'm going to go 30 miles. I'm going to go 40 miles, 50, 60 miles. Some of you have already Googled how many chapters are in the Bible. You've divided it by seven and you're right. Okay, George, there are 900 and where, where are my notes? I wrote it down. There are 900 and... 29 chapters in the Old Testament, 260 chapters in the New Testament. So George, this week, seven days, 170 chapters a day, I'm reading the whole Bible. Today's the moment. But here's what I would challenge you with. So often we make these grand plans only to get confronted by life. And when life happens, those plans fall by the wayside and they lead to tons of collateral damage. So here's what I would challenge you with. Would you go 20 miles a day? And every day just take a step. Hey, you know what? Today, I'm going to read seven verses. Or, or today, I'm going to read until God brings something off the page to me. And what I've learned is that small steps over long periods of time lead to knowledge and transformation. You see, it's not the amount of content that we read. It's the amount of presence we experience from the Holy Spirit in our life that leads to transformation. And so please don't leave this place saying, hey, I'm going to read 170 chapters today. But rather just say, hey, you know what? This week, it's been a year since I've opened the Bible. And I don't know how Jesus responded to anyone. And so this week I'm going to take a step. And then you know what? The next day I'm going to take another step. And before you know it, you'll be on a journey so far with Jesus. Now as the men go back to prepare for communion, 
I want to look at this one phrase. And it's verse 5. I had you underline two things. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And then verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is, don't miss this. This is significant. Which is yours in Christ. Some of us might be thinking, hey, hey, George, like, like this picture is just too big. Like, like, I mean, it's it's Sunday morning. We, we beat Kentucky and it's like 1023. And, and I was out late last night. And you're telling me that my life has to look just like Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that it's yours already. Like, like, don't miss that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So listen, like the power source that's already there, like, like the power source that, is, that says, hey, here's how you can live like Jesus. That power source is already alive and well inside of you. Like it, it is. Like, that's why when Jesus left, he says, you will do even greater things than this, than what I've done. And for some of us, that's like mind-blowing sort of things. But Jesus says, no, this is who I am, and it's already yours. It's already yours. And so the question that we have to ask as we take communion is this. What rights have gotten in the way of that power source? And then what knowledge... What do I need to do to, to gain the knowledge to respond like Jesus would respond? You see, as we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it should remind us that this is already ours. That, that, that we already possess this. And that, when the, and that when we choose to do this, the gospel goes out on fertile ground. So as the men pass out, the elements. Ask yourself, hey, what rights do I need to give up? And what can I do this week to take a small step with the Lord? So as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he gives us a picture of of what that room looked like when Jesus was with them, with the disciples, doing the first Lord's Supper. And here's what it says. It says, for I received from the Lord... But I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says in the same way, he also took the cup. And after saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's here's what I think is really interesting. In verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Like in, 
Like when I think of the word proclaim, I think of, of magnifying, but, but I also think of remembering. And I remember the picture of Jesus on the cross and how he was poured out for us. And inside of that cross, we find power to humble ourselves. We get the picture of what it means to live like him, to live unified together. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song and we're going to proclaim that nothing can wash away our sins. And the reason we do that is so we can leave this place encouraged to give up of our rights and to study the picture of Jesus so the gospel can go forth in ways in our community has never seen before. So let's stand and let's worship the Lord together.